Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. All right, well, good morning. Hey, we uh, mentioned communion, handing out communion cups, and we're told that we ran out of communion cups and didn't anticipate either the number in this service or the last. So if uh, at the end of the service, if you don't have one, what we're going to do is we're just going to have everybody split their cracker in half. And I'm totally kidding. We're going to have some that will be available down front and in the back at the end. So don't worry. But we are in this series called The Christmas Tree, looking at the family tree of Jesus from Matthew chapter one, that Matthew starts his gospel by walking through the descendants or the ancestors of Jesus and his genealogy in the family tree. And so we're gonna pick that up and continue looking at another one of the characters in Jesus's family tree. Let me start by uh, asking this question. Any, any Costco fans in the room? There you go. Um, Sam's. Sam's is great too. Yes. Uh, Costco, my t- family will go to from time to time, like a lot of us, it sounds like. And you go load up on, you know, 18,000 paper towels and water and just everything that you get there. And uh, we're in that stage where we'll just go to Costco with nothing going on because it's like taking your kids to the zoo, only cheaper and they have samples. And one of these days we went to Costco and I was checking out, or I had checked out and I was leaving the building and I was walking past the section of like, hey, if you need new windows or solar panels and all these different pamphlets. And one of the pamphlets was Costco travel. So I pulled it off the shelf because I had a 10 year wedding anniversary coming up and I thought, let's explore all our options here, people. And I pull it out and I look inside and it has different trips to different places around the world. And I'm thinking, man, I wonder what this is like. I'd never known anyone who had gone through Costco for traveling. And maybe that should have been enough information, all the information I needed. But I go and Google and type in and the trip that came up was an unbelievable steal of a deal. I mean, it was this trip to, to Rome and Paris, and it was just like, there's no way this mathematically makes sense for two people, flights, all the things included. And so I went with it. I'm thinking this is either going to be one of those, you get what you pay for, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to be, I can't believe you, on your 10-year wedding anniversary, you booked a trip through Costco, the place you buy paper towels, or it's going to be an amazing deal. And thankfully it was for sure the latter. And while we were over there, we took this trip and went to Rome. And at one point we got to take a day trip outside of the city to go to the city of Florence. Now you may not know a lot about Florence, but Florence once upon a time was kind of at the heart of the Renaissance and the art and culture era in Italy. And it was where Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and just a lot of these guys uh, were placed and did a lot of their work. And so while we were in the city of Florence, we went to go see by far the most famous or among the most famous artifacts that existed in the city of Florence. And here's a picture of my wife and I there. That's the statue of David. Uh, The clean version, you could say. We have made it because modest is hottest here and... Michelangelo created this statue in the 1500s, and it really is an astounding statue. It's 17 feet tall. He created it and carved it from a single block of Carrera marble, and it was breathtaking. It's an amazing statue of King David. It's arguably the most famous statue in history. In fact, one artist of the time said, if you were to see uh, Michelangelo's 
David, you don't need to ever see another statue again because it encapsulates just the perfection of statues. Michelangelo was 26 when he made it, and it's this incredible work of art of one of the most famous people of all time. It's not just a famous statue. David is, without question, one of the most famous people, period. That you don't even have to be a Christian to know David. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to know the Bible. And you probably have heard of David because even in the business world, we'll use a term that comes from a incident or a moment in David's life of something small going up something gig. It's, it's a David versus Goliath type moment. David is one of the more famous people in history. And he's certainly one of the more famous people in Jesus's family line, which is where we're going to look today. Now, it was incredibly important that Matthew, as you write the genealogy, the Messiah, if Jesus was the Messiah, he had to be a descendant of David. David was so important in the Old Testament, it's hard to overstate the influence and impact and significance of his life, the greatest king in Israel's history. Why do I say his significance is hard to overstate? Because the amount of time the Bible spends talking about David is enormous. David doesn't just write half of the Psalms. There are 66 other chapters in the Old Testament that talk about King David. Now to put that in comparison, if you think about Abraham or Jacob or Elijah, these other men, how many chapters, how much real estate is in the Bible about them? Well, 66 for David, when it comes to Abraham, there's 14. Jacob, there's 11. Elijah, there's 10. David has 66 books. Two times in the Bible, uniquely he is called a man after God's own heart. There's 59 different references in the New Testament to David. David was tremendously important and the Messiah was to be called the son of David and we'll see why. So of course, Matthew is going to include because David was a great, 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 great grandparent of Jesus. Of course, he's going to include him and he does so in Matthew chapter one. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then we covered in the previous weeks, Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the mother of, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, who we covered last week. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now we clearly see that the criteria of having David as an ancestor, which was a part of the criteria for Messiah, has been met. But Matthew does something else very unusual when he brings up David. Look where he goes next. He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon's mother had been another man's wife. Now, Matthew, why would you go out of your way to point out the fact that his Solomon's mom and David and Bathsheba was her name, was formerly another man's wife? I mean, this was easily the darkest decision that David would make. And we're going to look at that story today. Why would Matthew, go, you go out of your way to highlight and point? I mean, think about even the way he phrases it. He doesn't say whose mother was Bathsheba. And so that wouldn't be enough for anyone who knew the Bible to go, oh, yeah, I know that story. He phrases it whose mother had been another man's wife. And maybe it's, as we've said each week, because Matthew knew these weren't just part of Jesus's family line. They were in some ways the point of the story that he was about to write in the gospel of Matthew, that Jesus came for sinners and he came from sinners because everyone, King David, 
to Rahab, Salmon is a broken sinner in need of a savior. So we're gonna look at this decision. Maybe it's been a while since you've reviewed and walked through and see some of David who had these mountaintop moments in his life. And then we're gonna zoom in on this mountaintop moment, which would have been closer to a real valley moment in terms of the impact that it had on his life and others. But we're gonna look at the story of King David. So we're gonna be primarily in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now let me give you an overview of David. As I said, it's an unbelievably significant in Judaism today and certainly in the Bible in general. And he lived about a thousand years before Christ. And as I said last week, when we're walking through and I'm just gonna try to play the movie of the life of David and this incident in particular, sometimes I'll attach different movie characters to help me think through who would play that person and, and what would be the person that I would attach here. So this is my attempt at David and his wives. He had eight different wives. One most famously known as Bathsheba, who we're gonna look at in a second. And he had seven other wives that don't get a lot of real estate. And so I just thought, let's just have all of them be Taylor Swift from different eras. And these are Jake Gyllenhaal, of course, as David. And we're going to look at David's life and how he became king briefly and zoom through some of his mountaintop moments and then look at this story that Matthew, writing the family tree, goes out of his way to highlight. Because I think there's a message for you, for me, for all of us contained in it. As I mentioned, David lived a thousand years before Christ and the nation of Israel was at a time where they had just recently gotten a king, a first king named Saul. Previous, they had not had a king and the nation cried out to God and said, give us a king. We wanna be like every other nation. And God had said, that's the point. You're not supposed to be like every other nation. You're my set apart people, but the people persisted and we want a king. And so God gave them a king and his name was Saul. And Saul was the Disney World version of a king. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He looked like if you showed up at Disney World today, guest on, and that's who you would see, and pretty on the outside, but was a train wreck on his decision-making and on the inside. And eventually, Saul is removed from being king, and David, who was this shepherd boy, grew up in poverty, had been anointed the next king of Israel. Shortly after he had been anointed and Saul was still king, there was an enemy that came, and we mentioned him already, and one of David's pivotal moments in life where the Philistines, the enemy of the people of God showed up and there was a giant named Goliath who goes out and says, fee, fi, fo, fum, who wants to fight me? And if you beat me, we will be your slaves. If I beat you, you be our slaves. Let's not go to war. And the nation of Israel trembled, we're told. And then David shows up and he's bringing some food supplies to his fellow brothers or his other brothers who were in the war fighting at the war. Here's what's happening. And he volunteers to go fight Goliath. And he, with five smooth stones, and a slingshot takes down this giant. Overnight, he becomes a national hero. He's a household name and has this mountaintop moment in his life. Some time goes by and David, who had been working as a part of the palace or was in the palace as a part of the royal family, hears word that Saul has died and that God has placed David as king. Shortly after this, he has another mountaintop moment, which is a, a equally, if not more important than David killing Goliath. And it's one that doesn't get a lot of real estate. And it happens in 2 Samuel chapter seven. David is king. He's been king about 12 years. One day he's walking in the palace and he looks out and he sees the tabernacle, which was essentially the tent version of the temple. And he says to himself, man, it's not right that God should live in a house. I will build a house for him. And in 2 Samuel chapter seven, God responds and says, you're not gonna build me a house but I'm gonna establish your house forever. He makes him a covenant promise to David. 
It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you, David, from tending sheep in the pasture, selected you to be leader of my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build my temple, a house for me. And I will secure his royal throne forever. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house, David, and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This is why I say it's equally, if not more important, and this is the moment where God says to David that you're a descendant from your line will reign forever and ever, that you will have a throne that will be eternal. Now, as believers, we know that is in Christ, but as David, this is an unconditional covenant promise that God is making to him, that I'm gonna establish through you, through your line, the king and his reign will be eternal. Some time goes by and David, we're told, is at the palace. And this is a time where he's looking out the palace and he's not looking to make God a house. He's looking and his looking leads to destroying his own house, so to speak. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it starts out like this. This is the story that Matthew just referenced of Uriah's wife. It says, in the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab in the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. It says, in the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, it's pointing out the fact David should have been going out to war. But instead, just a young 30-something, David decides, I'm not going out to war. I'll send Joab, that's the general or commander of the army, and the Israelite army out to fight the Ammonites. Immediately, we're introduced the fact that David was not where he was supposed to be. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So the story starts, hey, in the time when kings are supposed to be off a battle, David was not. He was in the palace taking a nap. Gets up from his nap, goes over, he's walking around the palace roof and he looks and he sees a woman taking a bath. Coincidentally named because God has a sense of humor, Bath Sheba. And he sees and asks, who is that woman? That's beautiful woman. And he's told that is the daughter of Eliam who is a friend of David and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, if you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we're told is one of David's mighty men, one of his close 30 friends that he had, one of an elite force of fighting men. This should have been enough for David to go, oh, wow, man, what am I doing? I shouldn't be out here grazing on the roof, taking naps and watching people in the bathtub. And he decides to keep going and makes a decision that would affect him for the rest of his life. Sends word for her, we're told, and David sent messengers to get her. 
When she came to the palace, he slept with her. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent word to David. She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. David, who should have been at war, instead was at home, sleeping with another man's wife. And that sin leads to her finding out that she's pregnant. David is at a crossroads, discovering the actions that he has taken are now either gonna be found out or, and have some real consequences, or I have the choice, do I come clean and confess or do I keep going? He does what a lot of us do in the middle of sin where we can think, hey, I know what'll fix this more sin and keeps going. And discovering what any of us discover when we do that, it only gets worse. So he decides, I've got a plan. I'm gonna send for Uriah. I get Uriah to come home. It's been months since he's seen his wife. So when you get home from business after not seeing your wife, he's gonna to go to business. And so we're gonna have him go and then they're gonna to sleep together and he'll assume it's his baby and problem solved. So he does just that. He gets Uriah to come back and says, Uriah, go home. It tells us this. He told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace. Go be with your wife. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance, entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard, verse 10, that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah says, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So David's plan is not working. He thought, I'll just bring him home. He'll go sleep with him. And he discovers Uriah is a man of too much integrity that I'd rather sleep at the gate on the floor outside than go home and be in comfort when all my men are sleeping out in the open field. So David has a choice. Man, do I confess Come clean or keep going? And sadly, he keeps going. He says, all right, plan B. Here's what we're gonna do. Uriah, you come in the palace tonight. We're gonna have dinner. It's gonna be great. We're gonna be hanging out. And he decides, I'm gonna get him drunk and then he'll go home. So we're told this happens. Stay here today, David said, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard again. David has him for dinner, busts out some vintage 1000 BC Cabernet and gets him intoxicated, tries to send him on his way home. And Uriah just makes his bed on the floor at the door of the palace, refusing to go do that in light of where the armies were at. Uriah shows more integrity intoxicated than David is showing sober. And so David has a choice. Do I come clean? My plan is not working. Or do I keep going? And he decides I'm gonna keep going. I can't come clean now. It's too costly. So he decides that Uriah must die. He sends a letter 
with Uriah, sealed with the royal seal, to Joab, the general and commander of the army. He says, Uriah, I want you to take this to Joab. And Uriah does it. He takes the letter from the king and brings it to Joab, not realizing that he's carrying his own death warrant. Joab opens the letter and he reads this. Station Uriah, verse 15, on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. When the soldier's enemies came out of the city to fight, Uriah was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. David says, I want you to take him, station him in a place where the fighting is fiercest and pull back so that he'll be all alone and be killed. Now, Joab does something similar, but he just says, I'm going to put him at a place where the fighting is the fiercest. And it doesn't say that he pulled back, yet the fighting was so fierce that it ended up killing Uriah and sadly other men. That David's sin now has the consequences of ending Uriah's life and these other innocent men's life. Because sin always has consequences and always impacts more than just ourselves. David hears word that Uriah is dead and I'm sure thinks, man, finally, it's covered up. It's over. It's tragic, but let's move on. And his wife, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, hears in verse 26 and we're told that she mourned for her husband. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David have done, had done. That Uriah's dead, he brings Bathsheba into the palace. Hey, everything's fine, we've covered it all up. Everything's gonna be okay, she's pregnant. It's not a pretty story, but hopefully no one finds out and let's just move on. He thinks that he's successfully covered it up until one day there's a knock at the door and God describes how that displeasure he had was gonna take place. Describes how what David had done in different terms. He does so through a guy named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. We were mentioned all throughout the book of 2 Samuel, the relationship, the close friendship that David and Nathan had. And so Nathan shows up, says, I have a word from the Lord for you. And he begins to tell him about this interaction and incident that happened. He doesn't say it's a story. We know it's a story, but he is describing to David, hey, there were these two men and this happened. And he says this, there were two men in a certain town, Nathan speaking to David. One of them was rich and one of them was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. And the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and he grew it up with his children. That lamb ate from the poor man's own plate. He drank from his own cup. That man loved this little lamb. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. The poor man's got this one little lamb, loves it, raises it, cares for it like it's, it's his own child. It's the only lamb he's got. And he got the rich man, he's got all types of sheep and cattle. And the rich man has a guy show up, knock on his door, coming over for dinner. The rich man decides, instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, to go over to the poor man and take the lamb from his arms and to kill it 
and have it prepared for his guest. David's here in the story and we're told, verse five, he's furious. How could a man do such a thing? He says, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. And Nathan responds with one of the more iconic statements in the Old Testament. Think of a movie, iconic movements, or, you know, you can't handle the truth type moments. And Nathan says, you are that man. You're the man. The story is a parable. The rich man is you, David. Bathsheba is the little lamb. The poor man who only has one lamb is Uriah. The guest showing up for dinner is your sinful desires. You took from the poor man, the only wife that he had. You got a lot of wives, David. You took the one wife that he had and then you killed him to cover it up to care for your sinful desires. You are that man. How much did that prick the heart of David? And Nathan says, and God, because of that, has says this, I anointed you king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I made you king, basically. If that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites. And you have stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. And David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. That baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with had been born. And shortly after this interaction and conversation, the baby is sick and the baby, as Nathan said, passes away. The consequences for David's actions and sin would lead to a train wreck in his home because sin always has consequences. What do I mean by train wreck? I mean, we don't have time to go into it, but in terms of the impact on his family, David said the man should pay back fourfold for his sin. David would experience that himself. He would lose four children as a result of this. A train wreck in that one of his sons would rape his half-sister and one of the other brothers would kill that brother for raping the half-sister. Two of his sons would attempt to usurp David and take the throne. One of them was so successful that he kicked David and had David live in exile. And he set up a tent on the roof to sleep with David's concubines in front of all of Israel, just as been prophesied. I mean, just train wreck after train wreck, the dysfunction in David's home. And David was not a shining example through all of it of what a dad should be, of what a husband should be. If anything, we see the brokenness that happens and David's world would never be the same as a result of the decision that he made. So what I wanna do is I wanna look at really two imperatives for us and then one reminder about who God is that I think we can learn from the story of David. 
And I think David being included in the family line the way Matthew did is very purposeful that Matthew is highlighting as amazing as King David, the greatest king in Israel as he is. The guy who slayed Goliath, the one whose throne would never be taken, was also a tremendously broken sinner. I mean, think about that. The man who God used to write lots and lots of the Bible was a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a poor father, a poor husband, a polygamist. I mean, I don't know what your story is, but in terms of what showcases the grace of God, it certainly is David that he can use anybody. I mean, we, I don't know that we'd let him serve in the parking lot if David showed up here. <laughs> this God is a God of tremendous grace. And he rewrites and restores and redeems broken stories, which is the point of why Matthew included a phrase, David, Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. But I also think there's something we can learn and just simple truths related that could be a warning for us. And that first truth or imperative is that sin always has consequences. That David discovered that there's no just, it's not that big of a deal. It's just one more click. It's just one more drink. It's just one more week of being apathetic to my wife and not prioritizing and pursuing her. It's just one more purchase. It moves us further in debt. It's just one more month of not being connected and plugged into a local church, which God commands. It's just not that big of a deal. And David, if he was here, would say, no, sin always has consequences. That sin always has consequences. In fact, the Bible says it's as though there's a contractual relationship between sin and what it brings. It says in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. The contractual relationship of what do you get in exchange for sin is death. James, the baby brother of Jesus, would say something very similar in James chapter one. He talks about temptation and desire and sin, and it says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James uses an analogy and talks about conception and pregnancy and birth. And he uses the analogy of it's full full grown and gives birth to a stillborn. Now what's a stillborn? A stillborn is a tragic thing that can happen but it's a case where you think, oh man, there's life there. And then it results really in death. Some ways of fitting or very fitting analogy for sin because it tells us the lie that man, there's life there. It's not that big of a deal. It's just two dimensional images on a screen. It's not hurting anybody. Man, there's life there, but then you discover it brings death because sin always has consequences. If you read a verse like, hey, sin brings death, I mean, that feels so extreme. It's like, yeah, but, you know, I, I didn't die. No one exploded when I committed some fraud or I did something, had an affair or had a flirtatious conversation that didn't honor God or certainly honor my spouse. Nobody died. Well, how does sin bring death? It brings death into our world when it first was introduced in the garden, but it brings death in a lot of ways. I mean, sin brings death in relationships. Sin brought death to many of our parents' homes and marriages. Sin can bring death to relationships between siblings or between parents and their siblings. That sin, holding on to bitterness or abusive behavior, brings death. Sin can bring death to freedom. I mean, that's what definition of addiction is. That it's just one more drink or it's just one more hit or it's just one more gambling site. It's just one more rush. And all of a sudden you can't live without it because sin brings death to freedom. 
Same can bring death to faith. I worked with young adults, as I mentioned before, for 12 years, the last 12 years. And I heard the same story over and over and over of how somebody walked away from their faith. They'd showed back up at a Tuesday night and they were interested in potentially finding out more or reawakening their faith, but they had walked away and they say, I just found myself in college and I got around the wrong people and I just started making decisions that I never thought and planned to make. I just was surrounded by these people and all of a sudden I ended up moving in with him and we slept together and we lived together and I thought we'd get married and just one step at a time and all of a sudden I woke up and I never intellectually decided, you know, I don't believe this anymore. I just began a step-by-step walk away from my faith because sin can lead to death in a lot of forms, one of them being the death of faith. Sin, just like with David, rarely presents itself as a chain. Hey, David, if you take Bathsheba and that woman that you're looking at on the rooftop, it's going to destroy everything you want in life. Your family will be forever destroyed. You're going to be enslaved in the chains of bitterness and animosity, and your family is going to fall apart. David, do you want to do that? No, it rarely comes and says, hey, you're gonna have problems inside of your marriage because you're gonna look at pornography today and then you're gonna do it tomorrow and then you're gonna do it the next day. And then all of a sudden, you're gonna not be able to be intimate with your wife because you're gonna be in chains. Do you wanna do that? It comes and says, hey, you're gonna find some relief and coping from this stressful time through a substance abuse addiction or through alcoholism or something. Hey, and it's gonna have ripple effects all throughout your family. Do you wanna do that? That's typically not how sin works. It doesn't give us a chain. It just gives us a choice. One choice after the next and lets you build your own chains around yourself. But David was given a choice. David, you should have been at war. That's where kings are. You stayed home. You shouldn't have been at home walking on the roof looking at someone bathing. You made a choice. You shouldn't have invited her or had her brought in and then slept with her, likely forcibly. Another choice. You should have come clean, David. This is the time to come clean and confess and come out in the open. God has promised he's not going to take the throne from your family. I mean, you could come clean. Another choice. Keep going and to keep going. It's how sin works in any of our life. It's just one flirtatious conversation that it's not that big of a deal. And yeah, I'm married and she's married. And I don't need to tell anybody. We just have good chemistry to, oh no, we're going to spend a lot more time together. And I think I'm going to go to that happy hour because she's going to be there. And it's just one choice after the next. And then we're on the same work trip and now we're in an affair. But sin doesn't present itself as a chain. It just says, I'm going to give you a choice. You make your own chain. And David, tragically, took one link, chain link, chain link, chain link, and experienced the consequences of that sin that he refused to confess and decided to conceal. Scriptures say in Galatians 6 that do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Whoever sows to the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life related to this idea of chain links and how do we deal with those choices? Because my heart and God's heart and any of our heart is not that anyone would feel shame and guilt and regret, but we would experience freedom and move towards freedom. And one of the ways that we can do that is by having in our life what David had, 
which is a Nathan or people in our life who share our faith and are willing to speak the truth and love and who we live in community with, authentically with. And we see that in David's relationship with Nathan, that he had a faith-filled people around him, which is what any faithful people are gonna have, that faith-filled people have faithful friends, that faith-filled people have faithful friends. The second thing we can learn is to have Nathans in our life who are willing to call us out or to speak the truth in love, that come alongside of us. Proverbs 27 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses that you would have friends like Nathan that would be willing to speak the truth in your life that you could open up with and authentically share where you're struggling or where your marriage is at or where you are, where you're not believing God. Maybe just where you're apathetic and don't want to spend time with God. That you would have authentic relationships because faithful people, if I want to be a faithful person or you want to be a faithful person, it's going to involve having other faith-filled people in our life. James 5.16 says, having those people in our life is one of the ways that we can experience healing in our life. That it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. This is why we hit on community groups so much around here. Because if we're going to be faithful people, it's going to involve us having faith-filled people around us. Community groups are just small groups where you can authentically live with other people who can hold you accountable, who can support and encourage you, who are sending you prayer messages, who are, who are living life alongside of you and providing care, and you're doing the same with them. I mean, this is such a huge role in every person you see on the stage, every person that works on our staff, all of us live in community, not in special staff community groups. We live in community groups with other people where we can just open up where it's not, hey, the pastor says, it's, hey, how are you loving your wife, David? How are you prioritizing pursuing her? How are you doing with raising your children in a way that really honors God? How are you guys handling your finances? How are you doing with lustful thoughts? Let's double click on that. How are you being God's man at work? How are you doing at sharing your faith? Because I know that if I don't have faith-filled people around me, I'm not going to be a faithful person. And the same is true with you. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a small group or you don't have a community group. And this is the one takeaway that you have. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's just for followers of Jesus who don't have those relationships. The best step that you can take in 2024, ready? The step that you could take that will most measurably and materially impact your ability to be all that God wants you to be, ready? Is to get connected in another, into a small group of other believers in your life. It's not going to be magic overnight, but it is the means by which God says he shepherds, protects, cares, provides for his people. Hebrews chapter three says, exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And one of the ways he protects us from sin hardening is other people in our life. And the step that you can take is to get connected into a small group. Now, maybe this is the place where you don't want to get connected to a small group. Great. We want you to find another church where you can get connected into a small group not for the sake of being in small group numbers here, but because that's what God's protection and provision for you in life is, for your marriage is. If you want your marriage to thrive more than it is right now and you're in an isolated place, you need to get connected. Maybe you show up for re-engage this week, which is just a place where married couples can come and find help and connection with other people. But David shows us, and thankfully David had it, that faith-filled people have got to have or have faithful friends that are around them, that walk with them. My son, twice a year, we go on adventure guides, campouts, which is, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like little kids, boy scouts, I guess. And um, every other year we go to a place called Camp Grady Spruce, which is like an hour and a half west of here. And it's, it's like every um, 
what are those things that are really sharp that you step on? Stickers. Every, you know what I'm talking about? It's like the things on the ground. It's like every sticker in the entire world has concentrated to this place for everything. So you've got a bunch of six-year-olds that are just screaming everywhere that they walk and everywhere that they go. And my son will get those splinters stuck in his feet. And so I'll have to take tweezers and I'll have to go in and try to pull them out because part of it will get stuck in there. And he'll scream and be like, no, please, I'll just live with it for the rest of my life. I'm fine. And I know as any good dad, no, I, I've, got to get, I've got to get it out. Like there's part of it that's broke off. I've got to get out. Not because I need to add it to my splinter collection, but because I know that if it doesn't cut out or get out, it's going to get infected. It won't heal. You've got to clean it out. It's got to get out. And one of the ways that we as believers get it out in our soul level is by confession and bringing it out to other people in our life. Do you have those people in your life? So if you're going to be a faithful person, it's going to involve you living with faith-filled people. Our church, man, this is, again, so at the heart of what we want to create and want to be a high call. We want you to follow Jesus. We want you to call one another and me to call one another and you to call me. And we're calling each other to follow Jesus and also be a safe place where it's okay to not be okay. And we're not going to embrace and stay that way, but it's okay. And that we have authentic relationships where you can open up because we have faithful friends surrounding one another to let us be faithful people. Finally, I'll close here. The uh, last thing we see is that God is a God who keeps his covenants. God is a God who keeps his covenants. He keeps his covenants. David was given a covenant by God. David gave God every reason to break the covenant. He's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a polygamist, he's a terrible parent, and yet God doesn't take it away from him. Why? I mean, Saul gave God way less reasons to take the throne from him. What did Saul do? Saul took a census and he killed some, or he didn't kill people who he's supposed to. David sleeps with one of his best friend's wives and then murders him to cover it up. I mean, David gave far more significant reasons to take it away, but why does God not take away? Because God is God who keeps his covenants. He made an unconditional covenant to David, distinct from many of the relationships that we have in our world that are contractual. What's a contract? Contract has stipulations where if you keep your end of the bargain and they keep their end of the bargain, we'll continue this happening. But if one of us doesn't do that, then this thing is over. A contract would be what we have with AT&T, Mobile, T-Mobile. Spectrum, whatever it is, that if you stop paying Netflix, they will no longer stream those devices to you. Or if they stop providing the streaming services, you would stop paying them because that's contractual. God entered into a covenant with David. A covenant is something that only ends in death. And he says, this will be eternal. And God is a God, and this is good news, who keeps his covenants. God is also a God of grace that we see in David's story. Why did he allow David, despite all of the ways David blew it, to still be someone that God would use to be a part of the family line, to write Bible, because God is a God of tremendous grace. David is just one of many broken different people in scripture. People think the Bible's a story or a book of a bunch of good people, follow their example and be motivated. The Bible's not a book of a bunch of good people. It's a book of one good person and a bunch of bad people. And the bad people are so bad that they kill the one good guy, his name Jesus. That's what the Bible is about. And Matthew includes David's most broken moments because he knew he was about to talk about the Savior that was unlike any other king there was. Everyone else in all of our world and all of history is a broken sinner. Like David, like me, and like you. 
But the good news is we have a God who keeps his covenant and he didn't just do so with David. He made a covenant that we call the new covenant today. That anyone who trusts in Christ is a part of the new covenant that God has said, if you accept Jesus as the payment for your sin, his death and resurrection in your place, you have entered into a covenant and God keeps his covenant. What is the covenant? That you have all sin paid for and you will spend eternity with God forever. John chapter three describes John's way of depicting it. And we're about to close where he says, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes, not whosoever behaves, whosoever believes or trusts in him, that's Jesus, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. That John says, we have entered into this covenant that nothing can separate us now because our God keeps his covenants. That statue I opened with is a picture of, of perfection in terms of that art. But the life of David is anything but perfection. But the God he worshiped was perfection. And that God is the one that we worship today. And when we take communion, we're going to have a chance in a second to take communion. We remember the covenant that we are in, that our God keeps his covenants. When you take the bread, Jesus said, you remember my body that was broken for you. When I was crucified on that cross, my body was broken for you. He said, every time you eat the bread, remember this. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup, this wine is, is like my blood that will be spilt out for you in the new covenant. And then everyone who accepts and receives and trusts in that will be with me forever, will be forgiven, redeemed, and eternally with God. And when we take communion, we reflect and we remember that. So we're gonna have a chance now to do that. As I mentioned, if you don't have the elements, they're gonna be down front and they're gonna be in the back that you can just go slip out and you can grab them. If you're not a believer, we're so glad you're here this morning. But this idea of remembering Jesus's body broken and his blood spilt for us is, is really a family thing. Taking communion is really a family thing. And so we'd encourage you right now just to take some time to reflect and, and uh, not partake in communion. Additionally, if you could use prayer and there's just something you need to deal with, man, there's gonna be prayer volunteers that'll be in the back that would love to slip out. But I'm gonna give you a few minutes right now where you can just take the elements right where you are and remember God, your body was broken for me. Your blood was spilled for me, for the new covenant that I'm in. Thank you that you keep your covenants. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.